0: Near to listen rather than to the offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong do not be quick with your mouth do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God God is in heaven and you are on earth so let your words be few as a dream comes when there are many cares so the speech of a fool when there are many words when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, Oh, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming, And many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God.
1: Thank you, Jenny. Uh, And given that text, wouldn't it be great just to finish there? Um, But I have a few more words to say. Including why we have a few more words to say. So, um, Jenny, just uh, taking this moment and opportunity to um, to acknowledge uh, your ministry with us as well um, over these last several years. And we know that part of that's been uh, on top of everything else that you do, uh, studying uh, to do an MDiv. And uh, we understand that that has completed. You've actually finally finished that. So, would you congratulate Jenny? Uh, not only has she completed it, and um, this is you've probably heard it from Nathaniel because he, he he brags a lot uh, and has every right to. Um, but not only has she finished it, she's also done exceedingly well to the point that um, she's actually been invited back to participate in or to actually lead some of the lectures in a couple of the Old Testament. Um, subject matter. So the Psalms, for example, uh, our Old Testament, well, or Colleges, I'm not there, I haven't been there for years, Morning Colleges Old Testament lecturers invited Jenny back uh, to come and do some of the things she's actually done here at our church with the Psalms as part of their, their exploration together. Um, there have been other subjects too with Zachariah, uh, the Old Testament lecturer for that book as well has also really taken a, 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 um, a liking to Jenny's academia and her approach so look we don't want to uh, take too many rewards away in heaven for you um, but uh, just wanted to say that we have been privileged to be a sort of an observing part in that as we've seen and heard bits and pieces but congratulations on completing that we look forward to seeing how that continues to inform your ministry as well um, with Xenos Media and uh, other things that you've got on the ball as well so um, we're going to miss you as just as much as Nathaniel uh, and the girls too of course so but we'll leave that for lunch a bit later on. Um, Let's pray, let's have a look at this and and we'll go from there. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you that you speak, we thank you for the pertinent reminder of how uh, we can posture ourselves to approach you. Father, help us to understand this in an Old Testament context for now and we look forward to hearing more about it in a New Testament context as your people today. We pray that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be soft and our ears would be open. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I wonder if you've ever paused uh, for any considerable time to think about what it is you're doing on a Sunday morning when we gather in a place like this. Uh, Every now and then we do ask that question. We might do a preaching series in Ephesians, let's say, or we might have a a particular series on what it means to be the church. We look at our identity in Christ as who we are. We might ask that question, what am I doing here? Why do I come along to this place? Well, this morning's passage from God's Word is uh, every bit about that. And it helps us understand the magnitude of what it is that we are doing. Not just us, but anyone who gathers in the name of Christ today, anyone who gathers to worship God in whatever uh, tradition or experience they do that in. And Ecclesiastes 5, the first few verses here, helps us understand... um, that uh, what it is we face when we come to worship God together and how we should respond, how we should behave, how we should posture ourselves. Um, As you know, for those that have been here uh, regularly, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We paused for a little while because it was getting uh, pretty heavy there and certainly probably wasn't all that appropriate. Um, Well, in some ways it has been appropriate, but with our recent sort of disasters in our community and so on, we, we went to the Psalms to to cry out to the Lord uh, for a a week there. But we're returning now to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we've been going through it as a book. It's a book of the Bible that records basically one man's musings, uh, theological musings based on his experiences through a very, very, very unique life and a long life. Uh, We can assume it's based on Solomon's life. It may well be him writing. It may be someone else writing on his behalf. But either way, it's about Solomon, King Solomon, Um, known as the uh, wisest man to have ever lived at his time, and that accolade continues every time we preach from anything Solomon writes. But uh, the life that he lived was a life lived by someone who's done and tried everything there is to do and try in life. And at the end of their lives, they've only discovered that it's actually a troublesome thing, and it's actually quite difficult, and it requires much wisdom to navigate life and to live wisely in this world. And we've looked at this, we know he is one person who is absolutely qualified to write such a book as Ecclesiastes, just because of the resources he had, the wisdom that he had, and how he went to use it, as well as engaging in the opposite, engaging in foolishness. Foolishness. Um, so that's what Ecclesiastes does. It probes the meaning of life, and it guides us to better understand where and how we can find true meaning and purpose in life. Um, so far, if we just to summarise, the, the writer here has visited the courtroom. Uh, he's spoken about the marketplace or the workplace. He's spoken about the highway. And last, uh, I think it was last Sunday, he spoke about uh, the palace. And we looked at uh, those sorts of you know, places where um, justice is supposed to come down from. Uh, This morning he looks at the temple. He looks at the way his people, God's people at the time, worshipped. And he considers what it is that happens when God's people gather together, particularly for them at the time in the temple. Listen to what he says in verse 1 again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. There you have pretty well the core of this, this passage. He's putting up a warning for us. It's a warning to his people and it's a warning to all of God's people ever since. It's a warning to say that how you come to meet God and encounter God whenever whenever, uh, his people gather is important. Think about what it is that you do. Think about what it is that you're about to do. You see, you're not just dropping in on a neighbour for a friendly chat. We're not just turning up to connect with uh, my best buddy Jesus or um, some Sky Fairy God who's there to do whatever we ask of whenever we click our fingers and expect him to. We're going to the place where the Almighty Creator so chooses to stoop down and dwell amongst us. And that there are differences in that. He did that differently in the Old Testament, as uh, Solomon's writing here. And he does that uniquely today in the person of Jesus Christ. He's here now amongst us. So guard your steps. Guard your steps. Um, I think he's probably thinking back to the days of Moses. in Exodus, you remember Moses, the great leader of God's people uh, before Solomon. And remember when God first uh, revealed himself to Moses, Moses first encountered God at the burning bush. And what did God say to him? see, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, remove your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. You see, God is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. Guard your steps. Guard your steps as you approach God. What Solomon's doing here is issuing a warning, and it's one that we probably need to hear uh, today. It's one we need to hear because it's in God's Word. And it's a, a warning not just for those who are not in church. It's not a warning for those who ignore church or aren't seeing it as a priority to participate in. This is a warning for those of us who are in church. It's a warning for those of us who have faith. It's a warning for those of us who belong to God's people, whether it be the Old Testament people or the New Testament people. It's for those of us uh, like us here this morning, as we gather, those of us who like to sing a good song, those of us who like to uh, hear a good sermon, uh, pray a powerful, meaningful prayer, but who sometimes find it hard to pay attention or to perhaps back up week to week with the same level of enthusiasm and commitment. And it's a warning for us not to take what we do here for granted. You see, um, those of us, and there are many of us, I'm one included Yes, uh, just as I've said before here, whenever a preacher is preaching at the front here, we're preaching to ourselves and have done uh, before we've delivered it to God's people. But it's for those of us whose thoughts wander. For those of us who are full of good intentions, but who rarely, if ever, feel like you follow through. It's for those of us um, who, uh, who come to church perhaps half awake, perhaps we stumble our way through our worship times and then we stumble out again. And to be honest, we're kind of a bit unsure as to why we're a part of it and what it's all about. And this is what the warning from Ecclesiastes is for us. It's a little bit like... um, The best example I can give is probably what I was doing just a little bit earlier. I was reading the Bible. But for those of us with phones, okay, uh, in our society, and that's pretty well all of us. In fact, I think Australia has the um, highest uh, per capita rate of phones or something, uh, rather... Um, but think about phones for a minute. Um, we're distracted by them. Look at how many people are so disengaged from what's going on around them in the real world by looking at what's going on around them in a screen. And there are a whole lot of accidents happening. There's some funny ones. If you've ever looked on YouTube, you'll see some uh, funny things. Um, they're not the fatal ones, obviously. but. Uh, ones where people have, you know, walked into a fountain or walked straight into a pole or something because they've, they're they just walking along completely disengaged and oblivious uh, to the world around them. I know that um, the Sydney City Council are having um, troubles and delays and cautions around uh, opening up and operating the trams that they've installed. And the reason isn't because of budget constraints or because there's not enough power or because someone got the gauge of the tracks wrong. It's actually because they're still trying to work through the potential disaster for pedestrians in... The Sydney CBD. These things are electric. You won't hear them coming. And the roads, they're, they're flat. You cross the road, you've got to go across two lanes of not only vehicles but of these silent trams as well. And they're worried. Uh, just this week, we've read that new camera technology will be catching us uh, even so much as daring to touch at our phone. I, I don't think it's worth looking at anymore. We probably have to join all the P-platers now and put it in the glove box, really, to, to make sure. And it's probably not going to get up... The technology's probably not going to get to our area, but don't hold me to that or try and use it as an excuse in court. Um, but definitely traffic lights in the city. Um, they've got extra cameras or lasers or something that are going to be able to pick up people going anywhere near the vicinity of touching their phones, even mounted phones. Uh, In fact, the definition to touch your phone is that your car must be parked. And by that, they mean the same condition you'll leave your car as if you were walking away, which means turn off the key, put it in park, put on the handbrake, do that first, turn off the key under your seatbelt, then you can touch your phone. They're getting really serious. Um, There's a business guru called Seth Godwin, and he writes this about that situation. He says, yes, you shouldn't text while driving or or talk on the cell phone or argue with your dog or drive blindfolded. It's an idiot move, one that often leads to death, yours or someone else's. He's saying, don't go through life disengaged. Don't go through life half-present, stumbling your way through, distracted by those things. And I think the teacher would agree. He'd add, he'd say, even if you do go through life half-there, Don't do it with church. Don't do it in approaching God. Don't do it in the way we gather as God's people. You might say, not literally, don't text and worship. Don't show up half-hearted, stumbling your way through what's taking place here, because we come to meet with the God of the universe. My mum used to put it this way. She used to go, it's not bush week, you know. And uh, who else says that? Who knows, a mother or grandmother says, not bush week, you know. Our gathered times of worship shouldn't be approached casually or flippantly. So what does it actually mean to guard our steps? Well, the teacher gives us uh, two specific instructions on how we can guard our steps as we come to worship God. And the first one is this. Come prepared to hear from God and from his word. Uh, He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they are doing wrong or they are doing evil. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you're on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. We live in the most interesting of times today, says every preacher at every time of uh, of history. But this is the message for us today, isn't it? This is the most common message, you ready? Everyone's talented, everyone's original, everyone's unique, and everyone has something important to say. Everyone needs to have a platform and a a, a position from which to speak. Your voice is worth hearing. And our technology has backed that up, and it provides those platforms. Self-expression is our modern-day virtue, isn't it? It, It's it's my right to self-express. we tweet, we blog, we get to post our thoughts on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. We're, we're used to speaking and telling others what we have to think. In fact, it's encouraged, isn't it, at every opportunity. And the challenge for us as God's people today is that we'll come to worship with this same sort of attitude, this same sort of mindset. That's the, the culture we're swimming in. But the teacher says in these these few verses that we should come to worship with a different expectation, an expectation that we were coming to listen rather than to talk, to listen silently, it's any way you can listen, we tell the kids <laughs> um, than to self-express or to speak. And the picture here is of a worshiper walking into the house of God, the holy sanctuary. It would have been the temple in Jerusalem uh, when this was written. But today, this applies to any place that is set aside for God's people to gather. It could be this place. It could be if we gather outside. It can be when we gather at church camps. It can be where we gather in our homes as small groups, as small parts of the church. How do we approach it? It's the times that we sing praises of God with our voices. We sing praises to God with our voices and in doing so, we actually all get to listen. We all get to hear those amazing words that we've Been singing already this morning. And as the preacher preaches the word of God, there's this amazing, powerful time, and it it should be, uh, no more than 30 minutes, but it should be a powerful time where we come and we sit and we listen to God's word being read, God's word being proclaimed, and God's word being applied to our lives. One commentator puts it this way, understand that whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear his holy word? Well, that's the right way to come. The right way to come, that uh, the writer in Ecclesiastes tells us. It's to come with ears wide open, to come and sit and to receive what God has written, what God has spoken, what faithful men have written in his holy word. And as we worship, it's time to listen to that with. Soft hearts and open ears as we often pray here. But there's a wrong way too. And the wrong way is to come a little too quickly and to speak too quickly. Um, There's a great quote, this guy says it way better than I can, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says this about our gatherings and about Christians. He says Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. You know, that's a real challenge for those of us with the so-called proverbial gift of the gab or verbal diarrhoea or uh, verbal processes. Just thinking out loud again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer continues, Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother or sister will soon... Be no longer listening to God either. They will be doing nothing but prattling in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the depth of the, of the death of the spiritual life, and in the end there is nothing left but spiritual chatter. The teacher would agree, that's what he's called it here, hasn't it? He, he cautions us not to be too quick with our mouths, not to be too quick to utter words before God. We should come prepared to hear. What God has to say, and to sit humbly before Him in His presence with ears wide open, hearts softened, ready to hear. And the reason for this is really quite a simple one. It's a fairly straightforward reason because God's in heaven and we're on earth. I love the simplicity of this. The reason, you know, we like to ask why, so why? Well, because God's in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, remember the distance and the difference between a holy creator, almighty God, and us the creation of that God. God is in heaven. His dwelling is in another realm to us. And we are on earth, a created realm that he, uh, that he has uh, placed finite conditions around. He is infinite. We are finite. He is far superior. We are actually made a little lower than angels. We are still the pinnacle of his creation, but we are not him. We are not gods. We are not demigods. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Which really isn't a popular view of God today, is it? Sadly, amongst Christians. Today, even if you believe in God, we very often have domesticated him or we've reduced him down to someone we can understand or work with. And I get that. I understand that this transcendent holy God has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. And we'll get to that. But we run a risk here. Even with Jesus, who is now glorified and at the right hand of God the Father, in that same realm, here by his spirit. But we can trivialise, reduce and domesticate him. Which, of course, is a tragedy. So we have to come to listen, to hear. And this is really just so important for us to reflect on today. Think about what we're doing right now. I'm speaking and you're listening. It seems wrong, doesn't it, for one person to be doing all the talking. This is an increasingly unique thing. We still hear it from politicians, and how many of us go back to the phone and yawn and sort of, yeah, whatever, another talking head from the front. And there's great books written about it all and how that year has gone and should finish, but I want to contend from God's word that there's something unique about what we do with biblical preaching, if we're doing preaching as well as we can do it. There is a difference. Someone called, someone who's... Uh, been set aside, someone who's been privileged with the opportunity to spend concerted time in God's word and in prayer gets to speak a message on behalf of God to God's people. They speak, we listen. And you see, even though people might say, well, uh, that's all very good and well for you to say because you're the person speaking. The only way it can make sense is if the person who is speaking is actually one who's not just speaking themselves or about themselves or not just speaking on their own authority. It makes a big difference if we're aware that the speaker is speaking on behalf of someone else who does deserve to be heard and who needs to be heard, and that, of course, is God. Now, that puts a huge burden, doesn't it, on those of us that dare to preach and teach, and there are warnings about that in God's Word as well. It puts a heavy burden on the task of preaching, particularly if we take it seriously. And there, are so much, there is so much encouragement today to not take it as seriously as we have. You know, to say, hey, listen, I don't get it. I don't want to have to sit through 30 minutes. Can I encourage you, please, recalibrate what preaching is. And I can assure you, as one preacher here, we do our best with God's help to try and make that uh, a, a, a holy and uh, worshipful experience for us as God's. As God's people. We don't always get it right, particularly those of us that are a little bit more people orientated and those that go off script and um, throw away with uh, one-liners here and there and you know that well of me. Um, and I know people say that's great, it makes, makes you real and I get that, but I would much prefer that we got what we were doing when we're preaching is hearing from God, hearing what God has to say through his word. Come prepared to hear from God. Come to prepared to hear from his word. Well, how else might we guard our steps as we come together? Secondly, we've got to do what we say. Uh, verses 4 to 6, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfil it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better, in fact, not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfil it. I love the way Jenny put a tone on that. Uh, it's, it's true. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest To the temple messenger, we'll get to this bit, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? You know, in the Old Testament times, people made vows to God a lot. It's what you did. Um, In probably, uh, you know, last century, halfway through last century, people were still often making big vows uh, to God. The problem is that it's actually much easier to make a vow than to keep it. Do you know what that's like? How many times have you made promises to the kids? and then you lay there at night beating yourself up because you didn't follow through, or they politely remind you uh, 10 years later, um, or whatever the case may be. It's very easy to promise something in the moment. It's much harder to follow through. The Bible is very clear that when we make a vow to God, we're required to keep it. In fact, it's much better to not even make a vow to begin with. You're better off saying nothing, making no vow, than making one and not following through. And this is grounded in in God's people, in, in, in who they are. This, is, this comes right from the beginning of their teachings when they were understanding who God was that had called them and formed them as his people. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says specifically, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. It's exactly what Solomon here is reflecting on, isn't it? This is what the teacher is saying. God takes it very seriously when we make promises to him and then when we fail to keep them. Well, what sort of promises might you and I make today? Well, I can think of a few. And again, this isn't uh, to condemn anyone or to dump guilt because we know that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation and our guilt has been taken on the cross, which we'll get to. But think about the things that we say before God. When, uh, when, a, when we marry a person, a spouse, we stand before God and we make a vow that we're going to commit ourselves to this person till death do us part. That's usually the typical words if we're going to be taking marriage seriously. Um, Say a little bit later on, if the Lord should bless us with children, as parents we present our children before the Lord. And we're making a vow in the presence of his people. And we're saying, thank you for the gift of this child. And I make a commitment, a vow, to raise this child as best I can with God's help in the way of Jesus, these are the words we use, so that one day they may come to make a decision and a choice themselves to follow him as Lord and Saviour. That's a commitment as parents that we're making to God. And when we choose to become a Christian, if you wind the relationship back to the beginning, when it is that we choose to become a Christian, we make a commitment, don't we, to trust Jesus as our Lord and as our Saviour, acknowledging the Spirit's help to do that. When we gather to worship, to sing songs of praise to God, you know, often the words in them will be commitments and vows that we make to God. This is why we need to be careful about the words in the songs that we sing. And there has been decades, or particular eras, or errors one might say, uh, eras in the... the The the, the worship, I won't call it a worship industry, but you know what I mean, Uh, the supply of worship music for God's people, where there were some very, very vow-orientated words in the music. You know, I I know we sing some of them, I I didn't make a list here because we may condemn ourselves, but some of the the extremities of the vows that we're singing is it any wonder not everyone readily engages in worship of those sorts of songs. It's better not to make a vow than to not follow through with it. Not a might, I will withhold. Um, You know, I will stand till the end. Really? Not there yet. God will stand to the end for us and we put our faith and trust in him. Well, verse 6 is a little bit strange. It says here, Do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. What's going on there? Well, it seems the teacher is reflecting on uh, uh, the vow that people made to pay a certain sum to the temple treasury which is different to what we do as offering, by the way. When they fail to come through on that, the priest or some other messenger would come and visit them to remind them of their vow. I know some church traditions have done that. You make a commitment and then the elders will come around and follow you up uh, if you haven't actually followed through on that. We don't do that here. Um, but people might say to the messenger as he turns up, oh, I, I, no, it was a mistake. Sorry, I made a, didn't mean that. It was one less zero or uh, two less zeros or something. Um, The teacher says that God isn't fooled by those sorts of things. And God doesn't, he doesn't take that well. It goes on, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands just because you keep reneging on a vow that you made? The message here, of course, is to take seriously the commitments we make to God. And if making them, then be sure to follow through. So think carefully before you do. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Listen to his word. Make sure you keep the promises you make before him may we not be flippant or false in our worship and all of this is capped off in verse 7 of our passage much dreaming and many words are meaningless therefore fear god therefore fear god when it comes to our worship instead of multiplying words simply fear him and fear by the way as we've said this before isn't cowering uh, in terror of some petrified child before an angry parent It's recognising that God is God and that we're not and that we enter into his presence with some respect, some reverence, some awe of who he is. So guard your steps. Guard your steps. It's an attitude of the heart, isn't it, in how we approach God. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis, and maybe some of your minds have already gone there, in the story of Narnia, where the children um, are in Narnia and they learn about Aslan the lion. They hear about it from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, the quote goes like this. Uh, Mr. Beaver's explaining it. Aslan is a lion, the lion. He's the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I would thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. This is our God. Hardly safe but thoroughly and utterly good. We cling to the king in fear, but much, uh, but fear, in terms of being scared, is not, is not what that's about. Well, what's our response? I want to suggest there's a couple of ways that we need to respond, and there may be other ways the Lord lays on your heart as well. I think we really need a, a fresh reverence for God, don't we? Or just at some point, at some stage in recalibrating how we think about our gathered times, about coming to our gathered times. I know this is a challenge for any of us on a Sunday morning, particularly today. You know it's an even bigger challenge with our church at Five Crew, I think, than any church that meets at the end on a Sunday or towards the end of a Sunday. It really does feel like the last thing of the week before a new week starts, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that? I'm perhaps reflecting on my own heart uh, with night services over the years and and how I I sleep. A lot of times, oh, just, oh. I'll just come i oh, I'm going to go to church for an hour. Oh. Got Monday tomorrow, you know. Okay, maybe it's just me. Um, and now you're laughing at me. Um, but uh, but but you get that we we need a, we need a new reverence, a new understanding of what it is we're doing when we come together, a new sense of awe for what takes place here as we gather. We need to raise the stakes. The second thing we need to do is ground our confidence. And here's the good news into all of this. This is the difference between the Old Testament people of God and us today under the new covenant, under the new covenant established in his blood. This is the difference between us as Christian people. You see, the Old Testament people couldn't even dream of approaching God in any way. In fact, going back again to when Moses led them, they came to a mountain upon which God came down. It's where Moses was to receive the law of God. And it became a holy mountain, and God gave them these clear sets of instructions and boundaries as to what they could and could not do in, on, or near this mountain. God told them to stay away from it. And Moses himself was invited up, but he trembled in fear before God. And even if their animals so much as wandered a little bit too high up the mountain or came in contact with the mountain, the instructions were that they needed to be put to death. They had transgressed upon God's holiness. But for us today, the writer of Hebrews tells us something powerfully different he says that we can approach God with great confidence Um, have a look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to 16 I'm going to read from the new living translation it's not up on the screen but get these great words as we prepare ourselves to gather around the communion table so then since we that is those of us in Christ since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven Jesus the son of God Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You see, there's the wise worshipper and then there's the foolish worshipper. And on our own, We're actually all fools in how we worship God. We don't get it right, and even our best efforts at trying to will always leave us falling short. You see, Jesus came to save fools. And uh, verse 4 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes says that God doesn't suffer fools. But here's the good news. In Jesus, God suffered for fools. He suffered for fools like me fools like yourselves he saves us as fools changing us into wise worshippers. and that's why we come in faith and we elevate Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in his life his death and his resurrection in Jesus we have perfect and pure speech because every word he spoke was true and perfect every vow he made he followed through on even in the greatest pain and agony on the cross, each word of those seven stanzas that we've been looking at over the past seven years, um, Jesus chose with intention. He spoke those words as carefully chosen. You see, in Jesus, he's our mediator, the one that stands between us and God, the one who bridges this great big gap. And we have the ability to worship God perfectly. Because Jesus in us is the perfect worshipper. And now because of Jesus, God the Father can accept our imperfect worship because he's already received Jesus' perfect worship on our behalf. How good is that? Isn't that amazingly good news? That's the gospel. That's who we are today. Different to the people in Solomon's day. Different to the Old Testament. We come as God's new people by faith in Jesus Christ. And as we um, prepare to gather around this simple meal where we have some bread that's broken to symbolise the broken body of Christ, we have uh, some cups with some juice to symbolise the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that. Each time we gather, we profess and proclaim his death until he comes. It's an acknowledgement that we don't get it right but that Jesus gets it right for us and we can come boldly to the throne of God. It's Jesus' perfect life, his perfect worship in our place so that when we fail, God perfectly restores us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and then uh, during the prayer, if the helpers would come down the front and uh, prepare our table and we will participate in this meal together. Father God, we come before you boldly and in confidence, not because of us or because of our words, but because of Jesus Christ, his words and his actions. Father, we thank you that we are your saved people, saved fools, by a wisdom that is foolish to us, but is the wisest thing we can ever know. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness that comes through the cross. We thank you that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation and there is no guilt for sins, past, present or even future. Father, we come uh, time and time again before your throne in humility, in reverence and in awe of the amazing God that you are. We ask as we partake in this simple meal that Jesus gave to his people right throughout the centuries to practice Uh, That we would be ever mindful of your holiness, of your love, of your compassion, of your mercy and forgiveness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.